Hello, and welcome back to the first of the Volume 2 of the DreadX Collection Collection, which is now the DreadX Collection Volume 2 Collection, Volume 1 of the Volume 2, of the Collection of the Collection. Uh, this is the series where we go ahead and interview all the devs and the important people involved with the DreadX Collection. Uh, we, we always start off with all the developers first, so you're going to have a series of 12 episodes where you get to hear all about uh, the different creators of the DreadX Collection Volume 2 and, uh, you know, all their inspirations and, uh, you know, just the, the experience of working on it with some great actionable advice for all of you indies out there looking to uh, to get into the industry, which it turns out is just to, to reply to my DMs because that's how I hire people. So um, if you want to get into the industry, just reply to my DMs. Uh <laughs> Anyways, um, if you're not familiar with the DreadX Collection is, we recently released the uh, announcement for DreadX Collection Volume 2. It's a series of 12 short horror games released into one package. We're trying to say it's like the anthology film for games. And, uh, you know, we're really trying to shake up the industry by, by giving indie creators a platform where they can experiment, uh, you know, try new things, and that, you know, they don't have to kill themselves with burnout. All our games are made over 10 days. So, uh... You know, uh, you as the audience get a variety of really cool different stuff and the developers get to kind of focus on an interesting idea that they had that otherwise they, they might not really even be able to get paid to explore. And, uh, you know, I, I really am a big fan of exploration within the industry, seeing what else you can do with, you know, different concepts. And so this is just a great opportunity for developers to do that. And you as the consumer to experience a, a bunch of different unique takes on the same concept kind of all at once. So anyways, uh, we got our first... Guest here is John Shemansky, who uh, you might know from Maximum Action, and uh, he's going to be here to talk to us about his new game, Charlotte's Exile. So, you know, without further ado, DJ, drop that sick beat. Welcome back, everyone. How how is everyone doing today? Doing pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a Friday. It's nice and sunny where I am. I'm not sure um, if it's sunny where everyone else is, but it's sunny where I am, and that's important. It um, is. It is <laughs> overcast and muggy where I am. It's, like, so, uh, it's thunderstorms here. Is it? Yeah, that's yeah. probably coming our way. Um, yeah. Probably 115 it, degrees where I am. So a little 115. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, uh, well, that, that's the funny thing, right? Is because you're in Phoenix, Jesse, and it is 115 degrees there now. And remember when uh, uh, the president of the United States of America said a swift summer breeze was going to kill the coronavirus? How's that working out in Phoenix? Uh, very well. Um, we are the global COVID hotspot. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> well, it's, it's kind of great because, like, basically you're dunking on the heat record hotspot and the COVID hotspot. So you're a double hotspot. Yeah. It's, uh... Quite literally a hotspot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Lucky you. Quite yeah. a hotspot. So I'm, uh, I'm inside. I'm probably going to spend uh, 500 a month on air conditioning to keep it at a comfortable, uh, you know, 95 inside. And 
I'm vibing. How are you all? <laughs> I'm glad I'm not in Phoenix right now, man. Like, seriously, like, uh, wow. but I got to go back out. So the, I, I got to go back out and move some of my shit out of my place in Phoenix into my new place in California. Um, and uh, the, the the problem is, is that my roommate uh, in Phoenix has COVID. And so it's like, do I like go and like get my shirts and stuff? Um, but the worst part is that Cox uh, Communications, who I know that we're a positive uh, place for all manners of gamers and stuff. But there's one exception to that, which is that uh, I will always eternally shit on internet service providers because they are the worst kinds of companies in the world. And um, Cox was like, hey, we're going to turn off our online uh, like cancellations. Like, you can't cancel online for Cox right now. They turned it off, um, which what? is just like completely illegitimate. There's like no reason to do that other than that they don't want people canceling their cable, which is like, you know, super shitty. Um and uh, so I tried to, to and then, so you have to, you either have to go in or uh, call them over the phone. And when I called them over the phone, they're like, you're going to have to return this router to us. And I was like, can I mail it? They're like, no, you have to bring it to the store. Oh, and I was goodness. like, this is like a really weird policy to have in the middle of a global pandemic. And so now I, I can't go get the router from my old apartment. Like I could just drive out and like go do that. It's like a five hour drive, but like, I don't really do a whole lot else with my life. So um, like, why not? Uh, but like, I can't go expose myself and then go expose more people. Like, what the fuck is this goddamn policy? So I tried to call them to be like, this policy is dumb. And their phone lines are down now. So it's like... They... Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> it's so ridiculous. But luckily, I never put in my credit card info. And so, like, you know, I was... And they... Like, the funny thing is, is that they're saying that I owe two months in, like, back pay in order to turn my internet back on. And I'm like, listen here... I once, like, was 15 minutes late paying for my cable bill, and you turned that shit off immediately, like, right at the bell, and you were like, pay us right now. So, like, don't be pretending like you've been, like, secretly giving me internet for the past two months without me paying for it. Like, I don't know you shit. I didn't, I never set up automatic payments. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I just wanted to rant about Cox for a second. Who's... <laughs> it's... Sounds like it's... Yeah, it sounds like it's been on your mind a bit, Ted, to say the least. <laughs> Well, it's, it's, it's just very annoying because I, I travel, like, before the pandemic, I traveled for work for conventions all the time and stuff. And yeah. now I'm cooped up, and I would like to, like, have an excuse to, like, drive to Phoenix. I, I like making the drive. It's a very pretty drive. But, uh, you know, there's this, like, whole, like, you know, I'm being responsible. There's this whole COVID thing, and I'm trying to, like, personally, like, okay, well, I will not make this trip that I want to do, go see my friends because I'm being responsible. And then Cox is like, no, the only way to return your equipment is to be wildly irresponsible. It's like, whoa, that's crazy. Yeah, that's a weird policy. Haven't yeah. heard of that one before. Yeah, well, I, th I think that it just goes to prove the South Park theory that they only exist to cause suffering. Like, it doesn't make <laughs> sense if you, if you try to analyze their business model as like, oh, they're trying to like provide value to customers. But if you actually view it as that they just want to hurt people... This is great. They're doing a really good job. I certainly hope that's not the case, Ted. That would be pretty sad, wouldn't it? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, all I'm saying is that I'm, I'm an evidence... Facts don't care about your feelings, and I'm an evidence-based guy. And based on <laughs> the evidence... About your feelings. That's a great quote. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder who said it. Jesse, do you know who said facts don't care about feelings? Uh, that would be Albert Einstein. That is, Albert that is Einstein. an Einstein quote. Yeah. Oh, wow. I've never heard that before. That's really good. I yeah. remember that. He's got a lot of zingers. Yeah, he really does. That's true. Yeah, yeah. He's, uh... Wait, well... no. Uh, it's, uh, Dave... 
Isn't it Shapiro? Ben Shapiro. Yes, Ben Shapiro did say that. I was we were making yeah. jokes. Yeah, I was about to say he's the one. Yeah. Yeah, he's significantly. <laughs> I'm shaking my finger at you right now. Yeah, I uh, uh, let's let's talk about Ben Shapiro for 45 minutes. No. Uh, <laughs> how or did? Not. Is how he even real? The game he's making is about. He plays Ben Shapiro. Yeah. <laughs> Charlotte's Exile, you're actually, it's secretly you're playing as Ben Shapiro the that's, whole time. Well, no, that's who Charlotte is. It's Ben Shapiro. Didn't you know that? Oh, it's my God. pretty obvious in the title, I, I would say. Oh. No, obviously not. <laughs> but, like, for real, though, I'm really, I'm always curious because games are so personal, especially, like, horror games. So, you know, it, it, I want to see, like, how people think. I want to know people's mm-hmm. experiences and what leads them to the creative decisions that they do to, to make what they make. So... Is it okay if we talk about that, Ted? Yeah, can we talk about the video game? Yeah. So, uh, John, how much Five Nights at Freddy's did you play to make this game? So, do you want to know something? I've never played through any Five Nights at Freddy's games. I played, like, the first couple nights of the first one, and I played a bit of um, Ultimate Custom Night, because, you know, it's free. Why why not? Um, Of course, like everybody else, I've certainly seen them around. Um, So, you know, your design gets influenced by what you view, of course. Um, But surprisingly, the main influence on Charlotte's Exile is not actually Five Nights at Freddy's. It's Myst. Which I know that it seems a little bit like, you know, you've got the whole sitting at a table. You've got the whole um, looking up um, to see what a monster is doing thing. And those are definitely, you know, tenants that are taken from uh, Five Nights at Freddy's um, and other similar games. But uh, those actually were a design decision that blossomed first from the want to have a mist-like... Like the puzzle design was kind of the main focus. It's Mm -hmm. like... Okay, yeah, I want to create a puzzle that is mist-like in design. And from that, trying to then make this into something that was going to be more accessible and more streamable and things like those, that's when those design decisions that kind of are more mimicked in Five Nights at Freddy's came along, uh, Mm -hmm. if that kind of makes sense. Yeah, I think that um, what you're saying about the the streamability is, like, you know, pretty interesting because... um, like it's something that's hard to quantify in a game, you know, like mm-hmm. from a from a developer or a player standpoint even is like how streamable is this game? So like what kind of considerations did you did you put in to make sure that the game was translated well over twitch.tv or Mixer? Yeah. Oh, I guess no Mixer anymore. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um yeah, no, that's a great question. So, uh puzzles don't translate very well unless there's some sort of an aesthetic backbone to them. Um, like, you don't see streamers just kind of playing straight up Pycross or something like that. That's not something that's inherently interesting. But what is interesting is mystery. And that's not so far so far-fetched um, from the idea of puzzles um, in the first place. Uh, so, yeah, the, uh, the whole, the whole kind of concept of the game of, like, being in an environment which will lend it lend us some more mystery to things and then um not really ah, having mis- clues, having mystery ah mystery yeah <laughs> there you go um, yeah okay cool and then having like the the keys that you get to unlock the little locks as it were um to you know be able to solve the puzzle um 
uh, and stuff like that, uh, having those branch from clues in the environment itself, you know, these are things that are more understandable to an audience, not just to somebody that's playing and thinking about them themselves, but they're visual things that you can see on the screen and you can make connections in this really kinesthetic way, even if you're just watching somebody play it. And suddenly you're taking puzzles, which are something that are very much not um, viewer friendly in that sort of way, because it's, you know, all mental and you're making it into something that is way more accessible to viewers because just by making it visual and just by making it kinesthetic, you, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I definitely know what you mean. I mean, I've played it too, so I know what you mean, like, firsthand. Yeah. Uh, yeah that's right, all you nerds out there that want to get your hands on it, I get to play it first. <laughs> Take that. Womp womp. Yeah, I mean, it's, like, even better than journalists, because everyone's like, journalists get to play the game early, but if you make it, you get to play it, like, way early. It's cool. true. You get to get really bored of it way early, too. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's... Uh, Hmm? Question. So you said you mentioned mystery. So what is the actual for the people who haven't seen it yet? What is the actual aesthetic behind it? Yeah. Um. Uh. So are you kind of referencing the narrative narrative aesthetic or like the visual aesthetic? Because I think those are actually a little bit diametrically opposed in a way. Interesting. Uh. Let, let's go with the the visual first. Um. So yeah, visual wise, this is uh actually something that I was really hoping I could talk about. Um, I am not really a visual artist. Um, I never have been. Actually, of the brothers, the Shemansky brothers, I've always kind of typically been the one that has the least designer instinct, <laughs> which is kind of funny. Um, and so coming into the jam, I was like, you know, I want to use this as a way to um, to kind of sharpen some skills in this area that I feel a little bit lacking in. Um, so, you know, that starts with fooling around with your models and then that turns into uh looking into color theory and then that turns into um examining uh how what you're making is going to be affecting your player um and so uh when it came to the visual design which is like uh you know it's it's kind of it's dark but it's not really dark it's colorful but the colors are kind of muted you know it's um it's uh i found it way more interesting to explore something that was uh more about creating a setting and less about just being intrinsically unsettling if that kind of makes sense um so in the game uh you know you can look up from your table and you can see out into the distance into this library area and uh, if you're playing on a monitor that's maybe just a little bit brighter than normal, you can see just about everything that's in that environment, but it's all kind of obscured by shadows and fog, and it's, you know, a deep shade of purple, um, uh, purplish blue, um, and then to contrast all of that that's happening, uh, all the things that are on your table and in the foreground and all these lanterns around you are uh, this orange color, this really bright orange that's really visible, um, so you've got two colors that are, you know, opposite each other on the color wheel, uh, which creates this really neat little color balance differential, um, which I was really happy with how that turned out. Um, and that kind of uh, brings the player's focus onto the table because that's the one that's bright. Uh, but then it also kind of gives them this cool and un uh, unsettling sort of vista that they can look uh, over to see if they can find the monster and stuff. Um, so I guess, you know, ramble, ramble. Uh, I just really tried to use 
um, how things were set up and the colors behind them as a way of being able to draw the player into the environment instead of it just being a functional area in which a game takes place, you know? Yeah, and that's what I would say is actually what differentiates uh, Charlotte's Exile from, like, you know, even Five Nights at Freddy's, because Five Nights at Freddy's is, um, like, it's basically a series of still images, whereas Mm -hmm. your background even though i guess it is technically a still image has like depth to it it never feels like you're you're trapped in a small room it feels mm-hmm. it really does feel like you're at this study table in the middle of this grand kind of hallway which was really really cool yeah thank you ted i appreciate that um and i think part of that is uh you know because i'm not using a pre-rendered engine like something like five nights at freddy's does uh, I was able to add in some dynamic elements and some little details that you wouldn't really be able to do there. Um, like, uh, this sounds like a really small thing, but subconsciously, this means a lot to the player. Say, when the camera moves up in a in a game that you're you're looking at a 2D image, and you're looking at this table in front of you, and the camera moves up, you you as the player might not even notice it, but your brain notices that those are not three-dimensional objects, you know? It can mm-hmm. see that they're not quite moving in space how they should, and and things that you should be able to see, like little bits of pixels on the back of books and stuff like that, they don't become visible as your perspective changes if you just have, like, this 2D plane on the back. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, or, you know, rounded plane or whatever it is. But when you've got, like, a fully 3D environment... Uh, obviously that's not really a problem because it all moves in a 3D environment. Um, and it's kind of surprising just to what degree that can really uh, add a lot to uh, how your player feels in the environment. Um, and you might notice a lot of the famous, uh, the famous games that use uh, any sort of pre-rendered visuals like Resident Evil and Five Nights at Freddy's and Myst and all of those other ones, none of them have a moment in which the camera really dramatically goes up or down and when it does it looks weird you know and it's pretty much exactly for that reason hmm, that's really interesting that's like yeah. actually actionable look at that you're actually getting real actionable advice from the real professional Woo! podcast <laughs> so question like so when so not many people have played it yet obviously yeah. what are you expecting people's reactions to be uh when you're like watching a streamer or a youtuber yeah i'm really hoping for the aha do you know what I mean? Like that yeah. moment where um, they've got the pieces in front of them and then it all just kind of comes together. And I, it's not a terribly long game. It takes, you know, you're you're sitting at the desk and your your goal is to decode the ancient alphabet by, by paging through this book. Um, and so there's like clues of how the English alphabet relates to the ancient alphabet in there. And honestly, it doesn't take too long. Um, but uh, I tried to make it so that you've got enough information to go off of that you're not kind of just not sure what to do, but only just that much. And so everything else I'm really hoping is going to get that like, oh, I get it now sort of feeling from people, you know? Mm. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I having like, I really enjoyed kind of the, the I mean, because... It was it was significantly more difficult than I expected for a puzzle game made in like you know ten days, mm-hmm. um, because you really do kind of like. So the, the 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 puzzles like there's a few different interactable elements on the table and the way mm-hmm. that you kind of integrate all of those and that like the book you kind of keep flipping through and then you 
Like, it seems very... So the flow of the puzzles is interesting, because it seems very one-directional. I'm going right in this book, and the puzzles are revealing themselves as I go right. But as you go on, then it kind of opens up that you sometimes have to go back and forth, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, the, the design focus was uh, start with the book, have things branch off of that. And I think that's kind of a direct consequence of that design decision in the first place. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, Good thoughts, Ted. I appreciate your thoughts. No, I, I, it's just, um, see, that's the funny thing is I'm struggling to come up with questions without like spoiling it because that's the, that's always the problem with these talking about these like little games is that um, like there's, they're only like 30 minutes long. So if I spoil anything, it's like, well, that was the game. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally know what you mean. <laughs> um, can I, can I just ask how much mobility you have in the game? Uh, like, uh, sorry, could you maybe phrase that a little differently, Star? I'm not quite sure. Um, are you just standing in one place the entire time? Oh, gotcha. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Um, okay. you're able to, you're able to view, uh, objects on the table and the camera moves accordingly to view those things. And you're able to then also like uh like look up from what where you're sitting to kind of view that vista that i was talking about a little earlier but in terms of like the position of your player that stays pretty constant okay gotcha yeah all right yeah i can't yeah. i can't ask too much about like puzzle design or or maybe can i is there a way to do that without spoiling it uh yeah i think it's I feel like yeah. that's really difficult to design puzzles, and I'm always interested in how developers uh, view view them. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, you know, it's not. It, it, I think this is actually um, kind of a a weird, maybe a weird statement to make, but I wouldn't say that it's so far opposed to doing design for, say, a platformer or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, have you guys ever seen indie game the movie before? Any yes. of you guys? Yeah. Um, so inside of there, um, uh, Super Meat Boy, uh, Ed Edmund McMillan is talking about, like, the first few levels of Super Meat Boy, um, and how he laid them out in a way, uh, where the entire purpose was just to teach the player the various mechanics of his game, um, whether that be walking or running or jumping, like, that, uh, if you look at the first few levels, that's all that's happening there, is he's just teaching the player, um, how the game functions, and then the, after that, the player is kind of let loose into this, you know, not quite sandboxy, but kind of sandboxy platforming environment where um, the level design is obvious, but the player can use those tools in any way that they want to be able to accomplish the goal of getting uh, to the end of the level. Um, I kind of view good puzzle design as being really similar to that in nature. You kind of give the player... Uh, a little bit of a lead like you you get them involved in a way where they they feel comfortable that they they know what direction they should go in and then put them into that same sort of you know designed but sandboxy environment in which they're able to explore and gather information in any way that they want and come to those conclusions themselves and of course you know there's got to be points where you kind of help them tie things together um even by having information uh, positionally close to other things uh, can really mm -hmm. help to do that. Um, uh, here's a, actually a great example from a game that I 
uh, have not made, be uh, and I think that's good because I'm not the best at this. Um, in Mist, uh, you've got this, you know, you've got a little bookshelf where you can look at the books, and they, you know, you don't know what they do. And then in the same room, you have a different element that seems totally unrelated. And the entire point of the game is pretty much making a link between those two things. Like, that's one of the first things you see in the game. And it is also the way that the game ends. And the entire game is just you get gathering information to finally figure out that those two things are related. Um, and they're positionally related. How incredibly cool is that? Uh, I think that it's just so well designed. Yeah, I mean, Mist, Mist is probably, there, there's a reason it did well, you know? Like, it's mm -hmm. not just, like, this random thing of a bygone era. This is, like, Mist came out at a period of time where there was, like, a bazillion point-and-click adventure games, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, that was, that was how you made games back then. And so many of them were, like, so nonsense moon, moon logic dog shit, you know? Mm -hmm. And it was, like, hmm? Oh, and I was just, yeah, just working off of that, and Mist was totally not that, yeah. Yeah, Mist, Mist, like, had some, like, logic and reason to it. And, like, I, it's so funny because nowadays people look back on it and they're like, this game's so esoteric. Like, how do you figure anything out? But, like, in, in that era, it was, like, the most logical and sensical of all of those games. <laughs> yeah. It, it's like when people talk about how Fallout is, like, the original Fallouts are, are like, you know, oh, they're, like, dialogue RPGs, etc. It's so funny because the guys that made Fallout, like, Black Isle when they first made it, like, wanted to have a more shooter-action-y version of Planescape Torment. They're like, Planescape Torment is too boring and slow. Let's put guns in it. Let you blow shit up. That'd be so cool. Like, mm -hmm. that is the mentality back then. And nowadays, people look back at the old Fallout, and they're like, this is too boring and slow. Give me Fallout 4, where I get, like, a laser rifle and a minigun, and I get to blow up a death claw in the first ten minutes. Mm -hmm. And right. it's, it's yeah. yeah. But I think it's funny, because that means that Fallout 4, by going more or fallout 76 let's just say by going more action shooter oriented and less story oriented is actually in line with the original design ethos of fallout one spiritually at least not in like mm -hmm. a lot of the mechanical sense um but i, I just always find that to be kind of funny yeah no i i totally see what you're saying um i think that that uh the tendency to to handhold specifically has been something that's kind of cropped up more and more and more as video games has gone on because i mean let's be fair this is this is an entertainment medium that's been around for a fraction of the time of any other entertainment medium so we're still kind mm -hmm. of finding our feet um about yeah. how it all works and stuff um but the yeah the handholdiness has become more and more prevalent and i would personally say that that is not the right direction um, to go if you want to get people involved in in your product. Um, if you want, like, a linear narrative experience, okay, <laughs> you know, handhold all you want. Um, but if you want something that sticks with somebody, something uh, something that they come back to in any sort of a way, I think that that, that remembrance of, you know, oh, this was something that I came up with. This was something that I figured out. That's really important emotionally to the player. And it's you know how everybody has that game that they just love and they don't even necessarily know exactly why it is? I think it's mostly games that that are good at letting the player figure things out and experience things and, and you know, um, create their own path in, in, in within the, the realm of the game. 
um, that really end up doing that best. With, with, like, perfect example of Minecraft. There's literally, like, no guidance to that game whatsoever. But people kind of do what they want. They make a dirt hut. They eventually figure out they can go underground. You know, it's something that the player experiences and the game doesn't force on them. You know, you know? I think it was a really good example of this in, like, the stickability. You're talking about the stickiness of a yeah, player yeah, being yeah. able to, fi- having to figure things out themselves. Like... I haven't played the original Dark Souls in probably, like, ten years. But if you mm-hmm. ask me to write a map from memory, I bet you I can write a pretty fucking, like, pretty good map of exactly the pathways that lead you to all the different stuff. Um, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that that's because, you know, Dark Souls as a game kind of demands that you learn where to go and what to do and stuff. And, you know... Yeah. Yeah, can I, I push mean... Back on that a little bit? Say again? Can I push back on that a little bit? Of course. Yeah. Okay, so that is true, um, but I feel like, okay, it's like the differences between Portal 1 and Portal 2. Well, Portal 1 was good, but I think the puzzles were not as fine-tuned as Portal 2. Uh, I think Portal 2 was, uh, it's not a perfect game, but I feel like the puzzles themselves were were a little bit better. And I feel like what stuck with you was not just those, but also the narrative itself and the story behind it, the voice acting, like all of those things combined. So Mm -hmm. I don't think it has to be just mechanics driven to get people to to make it feel like their own. Um, You know, I think that's that's a really good point to start. and I think that more the more the point that I would like to get across is not necessarily mechanics, but more form, if that kind of makes sense. I think the form of the product is what's meaningful. Yeah. Um, All right. I, uh, I, go ahead. Oh, I'll, I'll just say this real quick, and then you can say what you're going to say. And probably. Oh, sorry. Like, yeah, yeah. What I'm about to say, well, you're probably going to answer my question anyway. So uh, basically, what I was going to say is like, do you think that? Okay, so there's more people playing games than ever before. And some of these people haven't grown up playing games like everyone here in the podcast right now. We've all grown up playing games. We understand these mechanics. We understand the associations uh, between different objects and how things work. But people like just getting into games that are more like not familiar with like games like Myst and such. Mm -hmm. Do you think that they would be able to look at your game and understand pretty quickly um, how things are put together? Or do you think they need to have that that pre-knowledge? Uh, yeah no that's really interesting um i think for something simple like you know a jam game uh you kind of you pull the cord a little bit on on hand holding the player so like my game starts up and the first thing it says is press left click to interact you know Mm -hmm. um and so if somebody hadn't played a point and click adventure before they'd obviously be like oh okay i point and click at things and and now i now i know what to do um, and then after you've pointed and clicked at something, it'll say, hey, you know, right click to go back. Uh, so in terms of like those basics, uh, I think that that would be something that somebody could pick up um, pretty quickly, just kind of based on the fact that I really guide people through that uh, as A to B as possible. Um, and then on the flip side of things, I think it's actually kind of a difficult example because puzzles are something a little bit more inherent to humans Um so uh, either they get it or they don't. Um, mm-hmm. And it's totally fine if they don't. That's part of the mystery. And it's totally fine if they do. That's That just kind of goes to show that they've, you know, done a lot of puzzle-like things before. Um, but for something that was maybe a little bit more video gamey, like, you know, going back to the platformer example, I think that there's a correct way to do it and there's a very not correct way to do it. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that that correct way has a lot of area for still giving that player as 
this expansive explorative sort of design form instead of just kind of guiding them bit by bit by bit um but i think that it's it's nuanced and it's uh and is subjective to each product um so i don't think it's something that you can really generalize easily you know all right adding on to what you just said uh because you're not just making it a standalone game for yourself you are also making a game that uh, you're aware of it's going to be part of a collection. So how mm-hmm. much was your thought process uh, going into that, or did you completely ignore that part of it? You know, uh, that's a, that's another really good question, Star. Uh, I did actually think about that. Um, the So the game starts up in a, in a way that I... And, and ends in a way, like like literally the, the part where you transition to the menu and then from the main menu at the end of the game starts in a way that I uh, that I thought would flow much more easily coming from a launcher of sorts. So instead of it you just kind of being booted to the main menu all of a sudden, it's gotta it's gotta fade in over a period of time. It kind of gives a little bit of time to set the mood. The main menu doesn't appear immediately. You see this lantern swinging in the background like uh, you know there's there's some things in place to make sure that it's not just like a shock drop immediately i want you in my aesthetic <laughs> and my narrative you know it gives the player a little bit of time to transition um from what they've been doing previously which is playing the super cool puzzles that ted has put together for the launcher so um, cool so cool <laughs> um and then uh and then when it comes to something like say length uh, i was really hoping to try to keep it maybe a little bit on the shorter side because i know that we've got a lot of people that are going to be you know bam 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 going through all the games (laughs) as i would if i were coming into the collection and don't really want to spend two hours you know on a puzzle game so (laughs) um so i tried to make it short enough that they could kind of experience the whole thing before they got bored after the first sitting um so they would never need to feel like um well i don't really want to go back to that one you know it was just too long uh if if that kind of makes sense no it makes sense yeah i think that it's a it's a really good length i mean especially once you've played through it once and kind of understand where to hunt for the different elements hunt playing Mm -hmm. through it again to get um you know all the different endings or whatever i don't know how many endings are in it i know that there's i know that there's two at least there is two um i did actually have plans for a third but i kind of scrapped it based off of uh a narrative hitch (laughs) Mm. so there's only two (laughs) and neither of those is the dog ending neither of those is the dog ending and neither of those is the ending where rubber ducky himself comes and turns all matter into various forms of rubber ducky and so suddenly everybody is you know a rubber duck and they have to figure out how to live life that way yeah you know that one of the endings uh you find out that you are comstock (laughs) (laughs) yeah just like that (laughs) so uh John, you've been known as Ducky for a while. Why did you kill that baby in What Remains of Edith Finch? Uh, okay. So, I've been known as Ducky. I've also been known as John Shemansky. And I've never figured out how those two things relate. <laughs> um, which is bad branding on my part. Uh, it's just simple, straight up. But, so, every single game I've ever released has released with my name as the the developer name right the the uh-huh. john shemansky but over time people have just kind of gotten to know me as ducky because that's you know that's my mascot it's the little duck you know mm. um 
And so I don't really know what to do with it now. It's like, sometimes I'm like, oh yeah, I'm the ducky dev. And then sometimes I'm like, no, I'm David's brother. And sometimes I'm like, I'm Gregor the Destroyer, you know, <laughs> depending on who I'm talking to. to. So I don't know, Ted. I think I think I just need to take a long, hard think about my branding and come to some conclusions about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I um, I, I've just been Ted for so long that it's hard to uh, like. If I were to create branding now, it would be weird. Like I, I yeah. feel like it, I would be just like, because I'm like starting to lose hair and like I'm 30. If I started with a funny name now, people would be like, "That's just sad." Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's like Ted, stop. <laughs> yeah, like if, if your name is like, you know, if your name is like Haas Thunder Arms because you threw the, the game winning touchdown in in high school. Well, I guess we just found out that Star grew up in the Midwest. Um, <laughs> uh, but if you like threw that game winning touchdown in high school and you've been known as Haas Thunder Arms for a long time, uh, like, and you can't then like hit 30 and be like, I have will now be referenced as Haas Thunder Arms. Be right. Like, no, yeah. What the fuck? I think you missed, you've missed your time. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't, like, <laughs> I feel like anyone could do anything, especially if you're somebody like Snoop Dogg or something. But, like, I just, I was, like, in, like, I remember when YouTube first happened, and I was, like, 19, and I was just, like, I need a name for YouTube. Okay, Starlight Skies. And, like, I didn't really mm -hmm. think about it. It was just, like, I just needed something that's not my name that's, like, I don't know, kind of, I like fantasy games, so let's just do that. And it has to be misspelled so that, pe you know, people don't take it on other yeah. platforms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I didn't really, like, think about it. And then um, I had to do Twitch. Like, I, I was like, okay, I need to figure out what it's like to be a content creator. This is, like, back in, like, 2015. I was like, Twitch seems really interesting. I don't know what it's about, but it has video games. I like video games. So I just went with Starlight Skies because that's what I did. And then yeah, everyone yeah. Started, then everyone started calling me that. And, like... And then it got really confusing because game devs were calling me my real name and then like uh, Twitch people were calling me Star and I grew my, a lot of my following through Twitch and so I was just like, oh my God. So I had the same thing that you were going through right now, John. Yeah. Uh, but I stuck with Star because uh, as like doing community management in the past, uh, <laughs> I had a lot of people that were like, they were gonna stalk me, they were gonna dox me, they were like threatening me, they were like sending me weird pictures and I'm just like, you know what? Y'all don't need to know my real name. Like, right? Just keep it anonymous. Yeah. yeah. I, I've had I've had game dev shit on me though, because they're just like, "What's your human name? What's your real name? This is so childish <laughs> that you go by Star." And I'm like, "Get over it. You know, like this yeah. is for me, not for you. You, I'm, you know, like if just call me Star. Like, what's so wrong about it? <laughs> yeah. Whatever name you want to use. It, I mean, it's essentially a pen name. You know what I mean? Yeah. That is that is a tried and true concept. Yeah. Mark Twain, anytime somebody calls you out on it. Yeah, Mark um, Twain has a real name. I can't remember what it is. Well, yeah, I'm like trying this, to think. There's I mean, a singer pink. Yeah, what's Mark Twain? Like, that, that's who he is. Right. Like, Theodore Geisel is Dr. Seuss. What? Sorry. Do you think Whoopi Goldberg was called Whoopi? <laughs> like, that's not her <laughs> name. The singer Pink, that's not her real name, you know? Or the artist formerly, formerly known as Prince. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you think the Immortan Joe was born the Immortan Joe? No, he he got it. He earned it. This is this is one of the things is that like I I wear suits to basically all of my like public gatherings. Jesse can verify. I wear suits to like things that don't require suits. Yeah, um, he's gonna 
He's got a red suit that uh, makes him look like a Devil May Cry character. It's really cool. Oh. <laughs> but that's the thing, is that, like, there is this period of time when you first start rebranding yourself where people are like, why the fuck is that happening? But after a while, like, people are just like, oh, yeah, Ted wears the suits. And that's, like, the real essence of, of confidence is, like, not... Is like just being able to not give a shit what people are saying for like long mm-hmm. enough for it to become normal. Because like every time you worry about like what people are gonna say, whatever, like yeah, they're gonna probably say some shit, but it doesn't fucking matter. <laughs> just right. Do what you what do what makes you happy, and then like you know go on with your life. Um, but you know, I just want to say real quick that I do know Star's real name, and the reason I do. I mean, I'm not saying that the reason I do is because I've never sent dick pics, but try it out, guys. Try out not sending dick pics, and then see if you get to learn someone's real name. Just try it out. I'm, uh, I'm not gonna tell you my uh, my you know Twitch pen name uh, because then it would risk people finding my deviant art where I drew myself as a, a pregnant anthropomorphic giraffe. Whoa! So, I'm, uh, wait, I'm wait, not, wait! This is way too interesting to I just let be, go. I will not be answering questions. Uh, <laughs> I think. Wait, no! I think this is a question that needs to be answered because pregnant anthropomorphic giraffe is very, very juicy. Well, I'm gonna edit this so it just said where I am, and then it ends. <laughs> Oh, goodness. <laughs> so you'll admit you're a furry. Is, is that mean, what you're saying? I am. I am. That was definitely a joke. I'm. I'm let the record state that I'm a furry. <laughs> In fact, I've never had any, uh, any form of. Any form of pregnant anthropomorphic giraffe in your life? Oh, God, this is getting way out of hand. I'm barely out of control. <laughs> you created this monster. This is your doing. <laughs> this is all, like, everyone thinks that Jesse is just random, but this is actually all feeding into the ARG that we're secretly creating behind the scenes. Uh-oh. People are going to have to come back and, like, find this, this one weird pregnant anthropomorphic giraffe line and then, like, search for, like, a special, like, tag on DeviantArt and that's going to lead them to an image with, like, some, like, inlaid, <laughs> inlaid like, symbol in the background that they can find out. Then they're like, oh, it was the Illuminati the whole time. The layers just keep stacking, Ted. There's so many layers. <laughs> so that's the thing, is that, like, I'm actually, like, pretty much an idiot, but I'm really good at rolling with the punches. Like, that's just, like, my only skill in life, is that I'm like, oh, I'll make the best of what's happening right now. Like, they were like, oh, we're going to close down the country. And I was like, well, I guess we'll make a video game. Um, and, uh, but, so when Jesse is, like, saying these things, like, there's no planning behind it, but it does get, like, melded into the world that we're creating. <laughs> yeah, we are actually have plans to do bigger things, like, like everything is um it's very secretive obviously we can't say a lot but there is more than meets the eye with everything that we're creating Mm -hmm. and we're building up to to bigger and bigger things eventually Mm -hmm. so like people just have to like kind of pay attention and stay tuned and like we're hoping that like once it's all put together that people will go back and like revisit things from the past and uh maybe it'll click for them kind of like the aha moment that john was talking about Yeah, yeah 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 Yeah, I mean, I hopefully, I mean, they'll have to, and if they want to get, uh, well, I can't talk about that yet. Um, well, we did announce that there's going to be a volume two, like a while ago. So, yeah, I'm just saying, if you want, if you want to find all the cool stuff in volume two, you're gonna have to pay attention to volume one, Unified World. Whoa, crazy! Not that you have to play the first one to play the second one. You can still enjoy all the twelve mini games, not having been a fan of the first. But I recommend you buy the first as well, because I also get paid for that. 
So, are we essentially just making Eldritch Mario Party? I mean, that's kind of, like, what I wanted to do was not necessarily Eldritch Mario Party. What I wanted to do was... Not not even Eldritch <laughs> WarioWare, um, because, like, the WarioWare games are, like, specifically, like, six seconds long, right? I, I think that's how long a WarioWare game is, right? It, it does actually vary a little bit, but yeah, a- around there. Yeah, but they're they're all under 15 seconds, I think, is, like, the WarioWare standard. Except um, for the boss ones. Those ones can be longer. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I don't know. Um, but, uh, so we're, but, like, it was more of, like, the idea to make an anthology film with the same, like, so usually anthology film will have, like, one theme, and then there will be, like, a bunch of films that around that theme um ideally usually it's just like whatever a bunch of short films film students made that some company picked up yeah yeah. but um the uh uh that was my idea with the the dread x collection not to necessarily have it be like a like a party game but um you know speaking of things that are in the works that's something that we wanted to do for uh, we've been working on for a little while actually over at the uh, the dread central side of things was oh interesting movie party game um, but we'll see, we'll, the mean announcements of that will come when that, that's done on that side of things. <coughs> I just focus on my, my video games over here, gosh darn it, and my website, and the running <laughs> of the site, and the finances, and the advertising, and the management, and the hirings, and the firings, and all that stuff. You know, just the, the few things, just that's a, it. Just a couple things here and there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, really, like, it's me and Ted, like, full-time on staff, like... <laughs> Yeah. Well, and I just want to say too that like the the new the the the, the website side of things has been doing really well lately. Um, thanks yeah. to the the valiant efforts of Sir Jesse over here and our new uh, writer Sir Sam, who uh, is I think at work right now. So <laughs> Sam, um, I believe we're rapidly approaching uh, sixty nine thousand four hundred twenty views. Actually, that's oh, not actually yeah. far from the truth. Monthly. Uh, monthly users, 69,000. Wow. That's yeah. pretty good. That's really not bad at all. Well, yeah, considering we've only been around for like six months, so. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty pleased I would with imagine it. that doing uh, the the Dread anthologies has been, as a side effect, an excellent marketing source to getting people to, uh, to Dread XP. You know? you know, you'd think, but it's really not. Um, really? Yeah, that we haven't really seen a huge correlation between... Uh, the games and uh, like what gets clicked on. Um, a lot of the what gets clicked on is largely just like algorithmic nonsense. Like it's kind of hard to figure out. Like I'm looking at the traffic right now, and our top story for the day right now is the the article that Sam wrote about uh, a Mambo Number no. Five themed horror game that came out like a week ago. And it's just like for some reason that one today is doing really well. Um, but what I will say is that um, what's really, really cool about uh, the website now is that uh, the the interactivity is, like, ubiquitous across the site. So we'll have a couple articles that spike, but, like, even on non-spike days, we still have a lot of people coming and just, like, clicking on random stuff, which is really great because that, that, like, kind of, that's, like, how you build a community. And if you look in our Discord, which is, like, super active, like, all kinds of people are talking in it all the time, it's, like, that's the kind of activity that I really wanted. Like, because you, you can basically, there, there's two guaranteed ways to get traffic one is to write a shock article that'll make just people click on your site because you're like is like the nemesis actually like uh an alt-right fascist and you're like what and then like you click on it um and then it turns out that no it's it's actually a zombie uh (laughs) which i mean maybe that's an alt-right fascist but anyways we won't get into politics right now 
But on the other side of things, um, that's one guaranteed way to get traffic. And the other is uh, covering like a really big current news event. Um, but the problem is, is that like no one actually gives a shit about like the site that's putting those up, you know? Um, right. Like, like if you were to read uh, a Polygon art, like, okay, so if Polygon puts up an article that's like, like I said, Nemesis is the alt-right, you might be like, that's fucking weird and click on it. But you're not going to be like, I have more respect for Polygon as an organization for putting that article up. You're going to be like, that was weird that they put that article up. Yeah. Like, it's not just about an audience to get traffic. It's also about building a community. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. And, um, one second. Uh, and then, uh, for the other side of things, um, with the, like the big news articles, like it, you don't care. Like if, when, when LA times is reporting that like something happened, like some big news story happened, you don't care about the LA times reporting that. What you care about is like the news story, you know? Right. Um, right, right. so what we're trying to do is like garner a personality and you see that personality, like the way that that translates into traffic is that the, 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 the traffic is like pretty evenly split across the site. So people are coming to see the site, what we have to offer, the kind of personality that we have versus just these big ticket kind of like hit, hit articles, you know? Yeah, definitely. Although you know, we do have a really, really good one coming out today by the guy that wrote the book on PT. He literally wrote a book about PT. Oh. And he, he did a five-page editorial on the sound design in uh, Fatal Frame. So that's one coming out today. I think it was specifically Ooh. Fatal Frame 2. So that's be a fun. cool article. I like that. Yeah, I'm excited to see to, to put that one up, too. Uh, that should be going up later today, which actually means it's coming out like a few days ago because this podcast has to be like edited and shit. <laughs> <laughs> the time... It's so difficult. <laughs> and it's a rough one, yeah. I also promoted a game today called Dread Out, which is like the Indonesian version of Fatal Frame. So that's interesting timing. Whoa, synchronicity. Yeah, was... Time is a flat circle. Matthew McConaughey was right. I should do a bunch of drugs right now. Hmm? Uh, okay. <laughs> that's an interesting <laughs> takeaway from Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> You're obligated to do a review or an article on every game that has the word dread in it. Like, <laughs> yes, I was thinking That's that true. too. Like, I was thinking that too. Did you see Bloody Disgusting put up an article today talking about how retro horror is super in, and they like name dropped a bunch of our games, and they were saying it's like doing really well. Really? Uh, yeah, I linked awesome. it in the um, I linked it in the Discord. I was pretty pleased with that. I was like, "What the fuck? That's cool." Yeah, that is really cool. Yeah. I mean, Erdorf, uh posted on Twitter a little while ago that he's uh, he thinks that um, indie horror is on an uptrend right now, which is really cool. Or at least, I guess, I guess he more said that he was feeling the he was feeling the energy behind it. Maybe I'm mincing his words a little bit there, you know. Well, okay, so I will I will go ahead and and get serious here for a second because if you look at the analytics on our back end, right for the the site. Um, like the only real way that we can judge what's on an uptrend and what isn't is based on the traffic numbers that we get, um, across me and Dread Central. So just as a quick aside, you know, uh, I was saying that, you know, we're close to 69,420, uh, monthly users on Dread XP. That's like, you know, pretty close to the truth. Uh, Dread Central gets like a million. Um, right. and so I, I get a much bigger sample size of like what people are clicking on at Dread Central, um, than I do at, uh, Dread XP. <clears throat> and um you know for the, the interesting thing is is that the the articles the gaming articles that are doing really well right now <clears throat> are the indie horror stuff i think people are really burnt out on silent hill rumors i think people mm -hmm. are really burnt out on uh people debating about resident evil and it's a lot of stuff that i've been saying for a while which is that like the excuse me uh which was something i've been saying for a while now which is that 
the uh, the indie horror market, I mean, sorry, the mainstream horror market is so underserved by big companies, and the fan base for those those big those big titles is so like insular and divided. Like you're you're it's it's really weird because like if you find someone that's a fan of like uh like Naruto, right? Like, it's not like there's going to be, like, this war between the Shippuden fans and, like, the whatever. I don't know Naruto. Do you guys know Naruto? What's an anime that you guys yeah. like? I Naruto. know there we go. all the animes. <clears throat> okay. All the animes. Yeah. But that's the thing, is that, like, there's not going to be a... Or, Dragon Ball. It's like, we got Dragon Ball Z, we got Dragon Ball, we got Dragon Ball GT, we got the movies. And there might be, like, fun little debates about which one's better within the community. But it's not like people that like Dragon Ball GT are, like, people that like Dragon Ball are fucking idiots. You know? Like, but in the horror community, that exists. Like, people that like old school Resident yeah. Evil will be like, you like Resident Evil 7? Get the fuck out of my Discord. I fucking hate you. And you're like, Jesus Christ. Like, people are really, really vitriolic about like horror stuff and, and i mean just look at like what's happening with the last of us too it's fucking ridiculous and so mainstream horror is this place that's like super unfriendly to audiences and and like or to, to developers and they're like well why the fuck would i want to appeal to these fans if this is what they act like but in the indie space that doesn't really like indie horror fans tend to be far more like upbeat positive happy they're like i just want to play a cool thing and so that's why indie horror is on the rise. And I, ever since we made the switch at Dread XP from being generalized horror, like covering all horror stuff to specifically indie horror, like our traffic has shot up by like, like seriously, like probably triple. And that um, is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel, I just feel like uh, there's this like weird collective thinking for, for things, especially with the game industry. Like for example, how, um, what is it? Battleborn is very similar to, uh, What's the other shooter game? Oh my god, that's so popular. Overwatch. Overwatch, yeah. They were so similar to each other, and they came out at the same time. And it's just like, sometimes people make a bunch of roguelikes at the same time. Sometimes people mm -hmm. make a bunch of survival horror at the same time. Uh, or like, Metroidvanias. Like, like for some reason, um, people have like themes and genres and stuff that they do at the same time. And there has to be a reason for that. There has to be, and like, collectively, like, we are just like sick of old things, and we want to see something new. And then people at the same time have these ideas that come out. And I feel like that's what's happening with indie horror right now, especially with like, maybe like also retro FPSs as uh, John could talk about that for a while, probably. Yeah. yeah, yeah. a lot of retro FPSs. So yeah, just the trends come and go and they happen at the same time. And it's like a collective thing. And like everybody together does that. And like, I think for us right now, it's not just about making like the scariest horror games we possibly can, or the like the best graphical fidelities that we possibly can in a video game. It's about making something that like calls to people and like themes that people can understand and relate with and uh, enjoy. And also, I feel like it has to do with the media too and how we watch a lot of these things through YouTube and Twitch now. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Trying trying to make something without being aware of the shifting landscape of like how people consume that media and like what their sentiments are is like really, really, really like you have to be aware of all that. That's that's like mm -hmm. a big key component to making a successful game nowadays. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I think especially with indie horror, it's been um, pretty consistent over the last like five or six years or so that um, character and personality is like the most important thing. You can't just really slap together a bunch of assets and have that be really popular. Um, like you might have been able to back before indie horror really got its got its running shoes on it. Mm -hmm. But now it's it's about, you know, having um, a really interesting premise. It's about 
uh, having having a noticeable character or or an interesting this or that, you know, something that really draws people in to say, hey, that's unique and different. And I, I kind of want to see um, just how people are going to react to this, which I think is also why indie horror uh, has such a large presence even nowadays in the YouTube space and the Twitch space, you know. Well, I also think it's because a lot of uh, streaming is mechanics driven. Um, like there mm-hmm. are streams for games like... Uh, that look pretty, I guess, but a lot of them, like the the popular streams, are going to be like you know Fortnite or uh, uh, what's that game with the guns that you shoot? Call of Duty. There we go. How did I forget that? Um, <laughs> the guns that you shoot. That's a really broad. That's that's a broad definition. To yeah, <laughs> but like you don't need to like know what's going on in Call of Duty. There's no deeper story to it. It's just like I'm watching the guy shoot the guns, and the story is how good is this guy at shooting the guns. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas. Uh, and uh, what what was my point with this? I'm trying to remember. Nope, lost it. Not bad. Well, just to kind of jump off that though, there is still such a healthy amount of like very popular variety streamers that that do their thing and have been doing their thing forever, um, like Markiplier and Jacksepticeye and you know people like that. Um, mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that is because there's still these kind of smaller bite-sized pieces that that bring an interesting thing to the play whatever that be an interesting narrative or baldy's basics which is just you know off the wall kooky whatever who knows what's going on there um and they've been able to be popular and be interesting with that sort of content for like how many years like 12 years now you know it's 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 definitely been a mainstay Oh, I remember what I was saying now, the mechanics-driven. Um, which is why games like Maximum Action or um, Gloomwood or... Uh, I haven't played Ultra Kill yet, but I, I hear it's mm-hmm. okay. I hear it's, it's pretty good. Um, like, why these games are popular now is, is, like, people don't really care about... When you're, when you're watching something on stream, you don't really care about being, like, overwhelmed by the cinematic experience of it all. Because, right. like, it doesn't matter how, like, awe-inspiring and jaw-dropping the opening segment is if like the entire time you're doing it, like the streamers like playing some Spotify playlist in the background and like talking right. to viewers and like, like, yeah, how's it going? Thanks for the like and subscribe. Don't forget to hit that bell icon or whatever. Like they're just like saying stuff. Um, but like, you know, what they do care about is like seeing them play the game and like succeeding or failing based on whatever their personality is, which is why games like Dusk, which, you know, Dusk doesn't look great, but it plays really well. Maximum action. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I hate to break this to you. Maximum action does not look like a AAA budget game, but what? it plays really well. Yeah, I know, right? You know, this would maximum action would have looked like the best game ever if it came back uh, if it came out back in like 1980. Just saying, it's still in early access. Give them time. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I will be the first to say that maximum action will never look like a AAA budget game. <laughs> that would be like so funny if like that was like the the big like they're just a patch that comes out like because you're making it in unity right yeah there was like a patch that comes out that converts the game to unreal 5 and like everything's <laughs> hyper realistic but it doesn't work triple a i know triple a graphics are boring you know like yeah. like just all this realism where i'm like i already live in the real world i don't need to see it in a game i don't want to that's like a big reason why i don't care for last of us 2 is just because it's in the real world um and it's like it's actually too believable for me i want like i actually want dark souls fantasy that's actually what i like mm-hmm. and so that's what i like about maximum action is because it's escapism for me and like yeah you know there's something to be said i 
Actually, me and me and Evan, the, the one of the Shemansky brothers, actually had a really long conversation once about how imagination plays into your experience with the game. And yeah. we kind of came to a conclusion that low fidelity or, you know, or sharp edges or chunkiness or, you know, whatever it be, um, kind of just inspire more imagination on the side of the player. And that's not a bad thing inherently. Um, so long as it's still approachable in some sort of a way. And that's why you still have people, you know, really ravenously stating that Ocarina of Time was the best Zelda, even though it's, you know, loads and loads, fidelity-wise, it's loads and loads um, behind all of the other Zelda games that have come out in the future. But um, I mean, Dwarf Fortress exists. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> or, um, you know, every single retro throwback that's come out uh, in recent recent memory or... You know, fidelity definitely is not just the only thing that makes something personable and important to somebody, you know? Yeah, and I think that that's... With the death of the large showcases, um, have we figured out if E3 is dead yet? Is it coming back? Um, I don't know. It's it's up in the air. People, it's such a controversial topic between game devs. Some game devs are crying in their pillows about E3 not being around. Other devs are like, yay! And they're, ha they're throwing parades and celebrations and parties. So um, it, it's so mixed. Uh, but like, honestly, I don't think E3, like the show floor itself was the most important thing. I think it was just having people to come together to have like a central focal point in the industry. Mm -hmm we all talk about the same thing at the same time yeah. spreading it out over three months is very stressful yeah me. oh my god i gotta say this showcase fucking bonanza that's happening where there's like a like oh did you see that the the, the spiders announced a new fucking game during the nikon or N nikon fucking showcase i'm like the what like i didn't even know that was a company <laughs> yeah they own big ben studios it's one of their subsidiaries i'm like who the fuck knew about this <laughs> i wouldn't know unless uh, sam had said something and it's my job to know these things so I, maybe i should pay him more <laughs> it's just ridiculous there's um, so much information and there's no one place to get all this information right yeah. it's all just scattered into the wind because what mm -hmm. would normally happen is that this okay so they just announced the dinosaur game right uh death death gasm no death <laughs> wasn't that's not death garden jesse did you write about the dinosaur game no, that was Sam. Sam, fuck. Death, well, it's it's death Ground. It's Death Ground. Death Ground. There we go. Death Chasm <laughs> was a, a, a movie about a metal band that summons the devil. It's really good. Uh, anyways, uh, Death Ground. Previously, the way that it would work is that there would be a, a number of these large showcases. Uh, Microsoft would be like, look at all the indie games we're making. And there would be like a five-minute montage of like 40 different games. You only get to see like 12 seconds of each of them. And that's how we would find out about uh, Death Garden is is through that, uh, unless they, they they had decided that their studio would be the one that they they amplify that E three for reasons like uh, Compulsion Games with We Happy Few, um, yeah. or Sea of Solitude when EA does that. But basically, yeah, that's basically how we learn about a lot of these these indie games, right? Um, like right mid yeah. mid tier indie games, not like fucking itch.io games. They don't have a that would be great. I would I would love if that five million dollars. Um, well, I wouldn't love it if the five million dollars didn't go to the, the the charity. That's not what I'm saying. If they had a lot, like if they had five million dollars, itch.io, and they held like their own showcase at E3, I would go to that 100. percent That would be super cute. I would really like that. 
It just yeah. changes every 50 minutes just when new games are submitted. They're like, uh, our show floor is all this stuff. Uh, oh, but you were here an hour ago. It's all new games now. That's how itch.io works. <laughs> I, I think how do I definitely... find anything? You don't. You just stumble across it. I think there's definitely room for, you know, that, ex well, exploratory game uh, game sort of thing. Because um, there's a lot of people doing really cool and interesting stuff that aren't affiliated with a larger entity of some sort and just fly under the radar because yeah. of it. There's There's got to be somebody, you know, the, the um, oh, what what's it called in the... Um, in the vo uh, vocal industry when you've got people that are going around YouTube and, you know, hunting up uh, talent, talent uh, searchers, talent something. Um, but, you know, we need something John, like that. John, don't give for... away my business model. This is exactly what I do. Yeah, that's actually really true, Ted. You that's need a, scout? a very good point. Yeah, talent scout. Thank you, Star. I, I, I've, um... I've done that before for publishers where I'm like, yeah, like I worked for a publisher for a short period of time earlier this year to try to find game devs to, you know, give them money yeah, and offer services. Yeah. And I mean, that's everyone in the industry now. And that, you know, yeah. we're going to have to do that for PR because that's basically what PR is. But this is the interesting thing about uh, the games that, you know, we're putting out, right? Is that we have different levels of experience on the Dread X Collection Volume 2, uh, different levels mm -hmm. of fame. Um, so, you know, we have uh, uh, one of the, the guys we'll be interviewing later, Joseph, who goes by Akabaka. He made the the Cthulhu, um, what was it, Kiss of Love or whatever. It's a Cthulhu uh, anime girl dating sim. It's fucking great. I just played it, and it's it's really really polished. And I was like, oh my god, this is like so like well done. Um, yeah. But the the thing is, is that like he he hasn't even really released his first game yet. Like mm -hmm. he's someone that unless you know the industry, there's no outside indications that like he's really good at this but if you know what you're doing if you're like an industry insider you're like oh wow all the signs are here that this person knows what they're doing and um like even though your brother right the 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 grand shemansky um grand shemansky. <laughs> he he, he oh, well he actually i don't think he actually has the largest twitter following out of he's any of the uh, devs he's, he's liquid shemansky and then there's um evan who's the venom shemansky and then I guess that would make you uh, solid. Solid. <laughs> solid. Yes. Here we go. Oh boy, that's a title. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, it's it's. Uh, but there's like the thing is like when you, if you were to look, if you were just to do market driven, like okay, this is the best developer, you'd be getting, uh, you know, David or uh, Penstaws is also you know has a lot of followers and is a really successful right, yeah. with World of Horror, and they're they're all doing great. But the thing is, is that it's not like they're doing orders of magnitude better work than these guys with just like 2,000, like, you know, 1,000 to 2,000 followers. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing is that like we don't have an equity of like quality in like, and that's all art media, you know. It's not like, like you can find a singer out there that is just like working in some bar that's just as good as Taylor Swift, but just like hasn't been discovered. That, that exists everywhere. Right. Oh, definitely. Marketing. <laughs> it really is. It's... It's about marketing and it's about context. I mean, I've been a full-time developer for less than a year, and the only reason that I'm able to do that is because um, David um, did well in the game industry, and I knew him. You know, it's uh, yeah. there. There's absolutely no way that I'd be 
um, even part of Dread XP collection stuff uh, if that hadn't happened. You I know? mean, Ashri had a little bit to do with it too. Oh, well, certainly, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I'm saying because David knew Dave Ashri and I knew David, yeah. you know, there's my, there's my in into the connection chain. Um, yeah, it's always like that. It's always somebody knows somebody. Always... And like, David Ashri doesn't know how to code. Like, he can't make a game on his own, but he knows Szymanski, and then they can work together, you know? Exactly. Oh, yeah. yeah, and then yeah. once you've got the team, then you start, you know, uh, you say meet somebody at a convention who has this interesting thing that they want to show you, and they seem like they know what they're up to, and, and then they, you know, maybe send that to you in an email, and then suddenly that person's part of the flow. You know, it's it's all about just making those connections with people if you really want to find a good standing um, in the industry, uh, at least at this point, you know? Putting yourself out there is just super, super important because you can't expect that someone like me in my, you know, very fancy $6,000 suit is going to walk up to you and be like, hey, do you want a job? Even though that's like literally how I hire people. But like, you, I, I hire people because I, I, I see them and I, I like what I see. But like, if they hadn't put themselves out there initially, I like I would never have known who they are. Yeah, right. good point. Yeah. But yeah, I, yeah, I mean, like in the general in the view of general audiences like you know people are so afraid of seeming like an idiot or what if this joke i make doesn't land or whatever just like just you got to market yourself and you got to be aware of like what you're saying so like don't be like a bigot i guess but like like you got to like you can't let your natural fears get in the way of uh and then you also have to actually like work hard yeah that's that's an important part of it too <laughs> yeah i mean you put uh, a lot I... of work into charlotte's exile it looks great well, thank you, Ted. I appreciate that. Mm. Um, but yeah, I I totally agree. I think the most important thing you can do is just start doing stuff, you know, and eventually something is going to click. There's not really a tried and true method to make that happen, but if you're persistent, then something will happen at some point, you know. Yeah, that's that's the uh, the the thing is, but the problem the, the problem then is that I find with a lot of people is that even if they do get a big thing that hits. Um, it's hard to then move on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, yeah. Uh, I I was talking to um, a guy that had made, uh, he's from Squid Ink Games. He did uh, They Bleed Pixels. Do you guys remember They Bleed Pixels? I do, yeah. And uh, But do you know what his game that came after that was? Not an idea. Uh, it was Russian Subway Dogs, which... Oh, I know that one. Right, you, so you know it, but you don't know it as big as They Bleed Pixels. I've yeah. never heard of it before, yeah. Right. And um, that's another big thing about this this industry is that, you know, unlike music or sports, like, whoever makes the game isn't in the spotlight all the time. So they mm-hmm. aren't, like, it's not then like, oh, they also came out this next thing that's really cool. We don't have that sense of continuity with developers that we do with other media. And that's one of the things that we're hoping to change with the, the collection. To Certainly to not to the creators. same degree. There's definitely certain names that are uh, ubiquitously recognizable, like Terry Kavanaugh. You know what I mean? Yeah. Every, everybody that's been in the industry in the industry knows what Terry Kavanaugh is up to, you know? Um, but that's like mostly old hat developers. And a lot of the people that are coming up um, within the last couple of years or so definitely do not have that nearly as much, yeah. you know? I don't, yeah, I don't know if there's that many, even Tim Schafer, there's really not that many developers that are a Steven Spielberg name, mm-hmm. right? That like everyone knows outside of the game industry. And right. so I feel like there is going to start to be some, some people that are going to break through to the mainstream of the media so that people actually know who they are. 
Um, yeah. So I, I feel like that is coming because games are just getting so popular. Like, maybe it's Notch. I don't know. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I guess uh, now that you mention it, it's Notch still make video games? That hasn't just, happened. Does Notch still make video games or does he just tweet spicy no. takes? He just, yeah, um, he doesn't make games. He doesn't have to. Uh, <laughs> right. Know, neither does Terry Kavanaugh or Jonathan Blow, but, you know. Notch has a, like, pillars in his house made of candy. He never has to do anything as long as he lives <laughs> on Twitter. I don't know if you saw his uh, his massive, his mansion with the, just the most gauche dog shit furnishing and then also, like, enormous like industrial willy wonka sized candy dispensers you know what's really funny is that other friends in the game industry that are literally like millionaires i'm not going to say who because that would be rude um but they are not like that at all like they live in like small apartments and then they get like big toys they might have a nice car they travel all the time but like they're not people that you know, he's the only one I know who's a millionaire in the game ministry that, like, has to have, like, that big mansion and stuff like that. And I find well, that really interesting. He, uh, he's, he's a person in the industry who, um, similar to uh, Griffith in uh, Berserk, uh, <laughs> sacrificed all of his friends for power and then discovered uh, it was not worth it. Uh, <laughs> all he has left is, uh, you know, his big empty house with nobody in it except him and uh uh twitter and the you know uh alt-right people he can talk to on there because like he he you know he sold uh he sold uh mojang or minecraft i don't remember which mm -hmm. one exactly um for something like a billion and a half dollars mm -hmm. and then he gave all of the other developers maybe a hundred thousand each and then himself 1.5 billion so yeah you know. he's not millionaire rich he's billionaire rich yeah i've had friends that had the opportunity to do that where they they made a successful franchise and then they sold that franchise and then they didn't do that though you know they shared the wealth and because they wanted to build something bigger than themselves and they wanted to keep making games and there's something to be said about like keeping your creativity by not letting it get to you because I think once you get co too comfortable, you don't want to make things anymore. And I feel like mm -hmm. that's not as fulfilling as a life, especially if like you're, you dream about making video games your whole life, you know? Right, yeah. So I just want to say when we were talking about Rockstar devs, no one remembers uh, the fact that Scott Cawthon, who made Five Nights at Freddy's, Five Nights at Freddy's is the 76th game he made. Seriously? Yeah. Including including such classics as Pimp My Dungeon and Fart Hotel. Mm. <laughs> Scott Cuthbert is such a gem. I really want to sit down with uh, with him I... over lunch sometime. Yeah. Ted, let's, let's do that. Yeah, I, I can I, I... email him and see if he wants to join Dreadx Collection Volume 3 or something. Dude, <gasps> do it up. I would love to work with Scott Cawthorn. He's always been, like, that guy that I just want to know. You know, it's not it's not anything about video games. It's just, I like Scott. He seems like such a guy, you know? I mean, and the thing is, is that Five Nights at Freddy's is, like, actually, they're they're not bad games. I mean, they, oh, they shut no, up a lot. they're great. Yeah, they're, they're good games. I mean, Jesse, you recently just played them for the the some of them for the uh, the Switch review, right? Yeah, I mean, they're they're not the game for me, um, but I definitely respect like what a tremendous impact it had on all of our collective 
psyche as gamers. I mean, uh, John, you you said like you never played it, but you still absorbed an incredible amount of information about it. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. um, so you know, it's impossible to quantify just how impact what a big impact it was, but it's clearly a huge impact. I mean, I, I just want to say that I know exactly why that game got successful and popular, but you'll have to find out when I replicate that for Dreadx Collection, volume, I don't know, whichever volume we replicate. I think that the Five Nights at Freddy's franchise has uh, shown to be unique and consistently um, of quality, unlike many other uh, indie franchises. I think that Scott has done a really good job trying to trying to just express himself in different ways as he's yes. created more and more games in the franchise, you know. I completely agree. Yeah. Like he you could see his growth as a developer and like as a narrative designer and like how he thinks about things while still uh, being experimental mm -hmm. um, and wanting to try new things within the the world that he created himself and like I just applaud like the way that he built the lore. And he just got people interested and wanting to to know more and talk about it. And I think that DreadX collection, we've done that too. Um, I feel like Scott paved the way for that. I, yes, uh, I think that he tapped into a zeitgeist in 2014 where there was this growing trend of ARGs with something like the Everyman Hybrid or you know Marvel Hornets, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and it it really. Um, I really, I really think that that kind of ARG format for making a game is is really, really, really interesting. Um, and I was really pleased when people actually picked up on the one that I put in the first game. Um, some people have like messaged me and been like, "What about this and that?" I'm like, "That's cool." And I always like seeing that. Um, but this one's going to be slightly more obvious because people it went over a lot of people's heads the first time. <laughs> Well, that's the thing, too, is that I don't think people actually started talking about Five Nights at Freddy's lore until, like, Five Nights at Freddy's, like, 3 or 4. Because, like, people forget that, like, Five Nights at Freddy's 1, 2, and 3 all came out in, like, the same, like... I think the first four came out in the first year. Like, it, they all came really out very quickly. It was really close quick. to that. Yeah, it might have not been just, like, a year, but it, it was shockingly quick. That's right, yeah. I'm look it up. So August eighteenth yeah. is when Five Nights at Freddy's came out. Five Nights uh -huh. at Freddy's four came out July twenty third of the next year. So that's not even a full year. Oof. Yeah, that is insane. Yeah. yeah, and remember, this is like, I mean, sure, you know, we it's pre rendered games; those are always a lot quicker. But we've also got these massively detailed animatronic characters that, um, I mean, those are incredible. I mean, that's that's Scott's thing is that he is excellent with modeling and character design you know and those yeah. are no joke those would take a very very long time to put together and rig and a texture and all that you know yeah creating a a likable character is is like or these characters that are memorable is like super 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 important to branding like people really do forget that like branding is super important and the thing about five nights at freddy's is that like all those animatronics while creepy there's also like you can buy a cutesy plush version for someone and they'll still like it uh -huh. like my ex-girlfriend was fucking in love with those. Um, those, like, plushy Five Nights at Freddy's things. Yeah, because um, the characters are super recognizable and likable. You know? <laughs> it's it's really very impressive, I would say. Yeah, I mean, that's why we're trying... Uh, not Like, well, that, that we're... Uh, that's why I'm really excited for people to start experiencing the character 
for the Dread X collection that uh, it was briefly introduced in the first game, but it gets more elaborated on in this game. Ooh. The hints are being dropped by yeah. Ted. Hint, 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 hint. And then we also have our new, we also have our new uh, mascot icon on the on the What's Twitter. That? Yeah. So. Wait, wait. I... Oh no, I I didn't catch what you said, Ted. What, what was that? Oh. Star, tell him. Uh, so I needed an emote, an original emote for the Discord. So I was like, okay, I need to create a character for the Discord because we need yeah. like a, 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 an emote that's not Pepe, you know. So yeah. I just like was thinking about like Hollow Knight and some other like characters that I really like, and I was just like, okay, I'm just gonna make this. I didn't think anything of it, and then I was uh, we redoing the Twitter, like the brandy for Twitter, and I was like, I'm just gonna keep using this character. And uh, like Ted and the guy who helps, you know, fund us, he they both really liked it. So now I guess we're gonna do more with it, like T-shirts, pins, like other things. Oh, so, you know, that's super yeah. fun. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll see. So yeah, uh, and I named it Tama. Tama. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. Like... Sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say I'll have to look for it. I haven't seen it yet. It is in the Discord already. If you look at the emote friend, that's the uh, that's the character. Interesting. Yeah. I'm looking now. <laughs> it's also on our Twitter. <laughs> our Twitter icon. Our profile. Oh, page. I see. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's adorable, right? It was yeah, adorable. it is adorable. <laughs> I like pugs, so that may have something to do with it. Just saying. <laughs> I could totally see that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, 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 John, uh, Charlotte's Exile. When, when, and where can people play it? Uh, people can play Charlotte's Exile uh, in the Dread X Collection number two at an unspecified release date that Ted and Star will have to talk about. Volume two, and it's beginning of August at some point. Uh, <laughs> we have we have like a date in mind that we're shooting for, um, but we're kind of still making sure that it's all correct. Mm-hmm. Ba- basically, we're trying to make sure that we don't have to like push back the release date. Oh shit! I should probably make the Steam page. Uh, so yeah, people will be able to play this, check out the Steam page soon. Um, hopefully, uh, when we get the trailer all put together and stuff, you know what? It's like making games. People is like, oh, you gotta have a really strong business plan. I'm like, just wing it, you know? Like, just no, like... no, no, no. He does it on purpose. Ted does this on purpose. It drives me crazy. I'm sitting over here making Google Docs and spreadsheets and all of this stuff. And <laughs> she's like, I got all these plans. And she's like, What's your plan? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm just going to like see what happens. I know. It drives me crazy. I'm like, What are we doing for QA? And I, like, I'm doing press kits. We're doing t shirts. We're doing like all of these things. And Ted's like, La di da da. She's like, How did you find the devs? Did you do like heavy research? I was like, No, nah, I just like called people. And I was like, You want to make a game? And they're like, Sure. And I was like, You're in. Yeah. What was your message to me, Ted? It was what was it again that when you messaged me to be part of the second collection? Uh, I don't remember. I think that it was like, "Hey, I hear you want to." Oh, I don't remember. It must have been something hilarious. I'm usually it was pretty something funny. very Ted. Yeah, I'm I'm looking for it. Um, I, I just have to go to the top of our Discord chat. I mean, I know I hired the Bathosphere Games by being like, "Hey, uh, can you make a thing that like has gameplay?" <laughs> yeah, it's like, are you guys proficient in making games that actually have gameplay? And they were like, what the fuck? And I was like, no, because I like, because that's like a criteria for me, like hiring you. And they're like, oh. But uh, 
And they were like, oh, <laughs> that's it, just oh. <laughs> I mean, they were very pleased to find out that I would like to give them money to make video games, so that was good. Yeah, who wouldn't be? Yeah. It's so rare, Ted, it's so rare. Yeah, I said, hey, your brother told me you might want to get on this sick bundle we got going on. And then you said, hey, yeah, I'd be super excited to get involved. What are some of the details? And I was like, I don't know, just call me. And you were like, okay. <laughs> no, you are like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that is also like, uh, we do this like meeting where we all together and they everyone pitches the game. And then they're like, do we need to come up with a name right now? And Ted's like, no, 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 you don't need to come up with a name, just like the general premise. And then I get everyone's like game design documents together. And then um, all of a sudden, I didn't know this, the developers didn't know this, but Ted, uh, when we announced the game, like we needed the title like that day and we needed a <laughs> screenshot. Like, and I was like, oh, wait a minute. You know, like, I guess we needed more. We actually needed that title, but we didn't know when they needed that title yeah. or like. But luckily, I yeah. was like, hey, give me the titles and the screenshots. And then most of the people re responded. And those that didn't, I was like, get it to me. They're like, okay. <laughs> yeah. I literally yeah. made up my title and branding as I was making my branding in the GIMP. There was no forethought to this whatsoever. See, it, it's, it's yeah. okay. It, see, the thing is, is that it's okay to impose that kind of crunch on developers if you're okay with them just doing whatever. Like, if, 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 if John got back to me, he was like, uh, this is my title, and I'm like, that's dumb, don't use it. He'd be like, that's unfair, because he just asked me to come up with it now. But he's like, I just came up with it now. And I'm like, perfect, whatever. And then I just throw right, it in right, there. Right, right. <laughs> I don't want to give people the wrong ideas, though, because like we do care about some parameters, because this does represent our brand. And if we make anything that's like too... You know what I mean? Yes. Like, <laughs> no, no. I, I will say yeah. is that yeah, um, there is like some thought that goes into like the preliminary hiring to make sure that we're not like making all porn. Like, in, like, in fact, zero porn. We're making I don't, no I porn. Don't think that's the problem. I think it's it's usually like when people are insulting, like let's say people with disabilities. Like that's not something like something uh, like for example, I heard somebody complain about the word tone deaf because they're saying, hey, that's not cool to a disability people to say that a company's tone deaf because you're insinuating that, that and I'm I'm like oh my goodness I didn't even think about this right mm -hmm. so you're actually accidentally alienating people and you don't even know that and so like that's what I worry about because some people come back to us like five years later like your game is terrible and it made me feel like shit and I'm like I'm so sorry you know I didn't even think about this you know I wasn't even aware and so it's like all these like small things that like yeah you that's add true up. yeah but, like, look at all these problematic content creators. Like, they thought that their content was great, like, years ago, and now they're all getting canceled and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, rightfully so, so, but it's because they didn't think things through because they wanted those, like, hot numbers. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, I, yeah. I, we definitely aren't trying to, like, make the hottest takes over here. And there was, yeah. like, <laughs> basically what I'm trying to say is that there's, there's, in order to be an indie dev, there are plans that you need to have, but you also need to be able to roll with the punches somewhat and just kind of get things done. And yes. that is what this team is really great at, is rolling with the punches and getting things done. I'm really excited to see the last couple... Uh, well, all the games uh, are basically in. It's just one of them I haven't played yet. So anyways, uh, we actually uh, have been going on over time now, and so we need to uh, wrap this up, which is why I was like, where can you find the game? So you can find <laughs> uh, John uh, Shemansky over here, his uh, Charlotte's Exile on as part of the Dreadx collection volume two which is scheduled to come out at the beginning of august at some point uh we will have an official date soon but uh if you want to find out more about his game 
uh, we're going to be doing uh, screenshot days uh, that you can go ahead and check out more information about all the games. Star, you want to go ahead and give that a pitch? Uh, I, I wasn't prepared. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> play, do you want me to talk, play DreadX Collection 2? No, when, that... screenshot days, Wednesdays and Saturdays. I knew this. Oh, that. Okay, yes. Sorry, I wasn't sure. Okay, so I'm doing two things right now. One is called the Dread Spotlight, hashtag Dread Spotlight, where basically I'm like hashtagging like older horror games so that if you're a content creator, you can just click on that hashtag and you can find uh, horror games, like new horror games you can play on Twitch or YouTube. And then uh, I'm doing every Wednesdays and Saturdays, I'm calling it the developer sneak peeks. So that's when we actually like retweet what the developers have been working on. So if you're actually curious about seeing what they're doing before the game actually comes out, check out our social media Wednesday and Saturday. Mm-hmm. Okay. Whoop, whoop. Awesome. Sounds great. Jesse, you got anything? Uh, <laughs> nope. Just going to reiterate that I'm not a furry. Okay, cool. <laughs> you're so offended. You're pregnant anthropomorphic giraffe. Who <laughs> said it? Okay, well, uh, now that we have uh, confirmed that Jesse is not a furry, despite what his DeviantArt might look like, we can go ahead and wrap this up. So, everyone, thank you so much for uh, check for once again listening. We're going to have another slew of the DreadX Collection Collection podcasts coming out in the next couple weeks. Uh, so check in. We're going to be kind of knocking these out of the park. Uh, we always do great. We do great. Everyone knows we have the best podcasts. Everyone says, Ted, your podcasts are the best. More people should be listening to them. And I said, I know. Well, a lot already do. A lot already do. Our numbers are incredible. So let's just make them even bigger, you know? Anyways, uh, vote for me, uh, Kanye2020. All right, bye. <laughs> See ya. Yo, what's going on tonight? I'm running free all over the court and you didn't give me the ball. Man, what are you talking about? Talking about making sure I get my touches up. Need a ball, share with the teammates. Make the extra pass so that we can get easy looks, right? Well, get out of my face with that, man. I do what I do with the rock for the good of this team. And I don't need nobody second guessing. You ain't my coach, punk. That's the kind of stuff you should talk about. Move yourself, man. The kind of stuff we should be talking about. Get over yourself, man. That's the kind of stuff we should be talking about.